glad you're here in Houston. Glad you're here at your home theological seminary. Thank you, sir. Let me start with a prayer. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask uh, you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, but we are not always filled. Fill us with the Spirit of God. When we speak or listen, but above all, when we go out of this place, we will act out what the Holy Spirit teaches us in a powerful way to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me start with uh, an effort of a little joke. As you notice, uh, I am a man in black. And uh, that reflects the book of James. And I, and I explain that later. Uh, secondly, I have a tie. I did not know why I put the tie on. But when he needed to put this instrument on here, I knew that that was the purpose of the tie, to carry uh, the uh, technology. All right, uh, in a real sense, uh, I can talk about my life in two major sections. In 2005, I was teaching systematic theology, uh, survey of the Old and New Testament, ethics, uh, apologetics, uh, book studies like John and James and Second Corinthians. And then in 2005, uh, I put new tires on my vehicle and I call it a retirement, and I began to focus more on schools of evangelism. So for all practical purposes, I now am going back to the years that I talked about teaching to observe whatever God has commanded, and that is the second part of the grand command. And I am focusing now in most of my ministries on the first part, now making disciples. I have all kinds of handouts, and I'm more than happy uh, to give them to you. Now, when I go back to my uh, earlier years, I uh, began to become very enamored in James. That must be in the 1960s. I read virtually every commentary on James. I wrote a first edition, which was published in Germany, of 900 pages. And um, when they shipped it across the ocean, about 40 or 50 sets uh, just disappeared in the ocean and now I'm working on my second edition and that is about 1400 pages now and I am more than happy to send it to you electronically because this is the tip the very tip of the iceberg that I'm going to share with you all right so you understand a lot of stuff that I'm not able to to cover now I have decided to divide the material in three sections the first one is uh, biblical, th the biblical theolo theological place and function of James. Then the systematic theological uh, function and place of James. And then the content theological function and place of the book of James. But before I do that, as you notice, everyone these days, who talks of, uh, com makes commentary, writes commentaries on James, have begun to agree that James is a very early document in the New Testament, and most likely the earliest document written even before the Gospels, and even before Galatians. Uh, one of the reasons is that uh, the verbiage is very Old Testamentish, and uh, the people to whom he wrote 
is absolutely, from my perspective, the church of Christ to the 12 tribes, but not just to the Jews. Now, uh, the commentators are somewhat divided. Most of them believe that it's written to the total church, and many of them believe that it was really written to the Jews, Jewish Christians. I am not of that conviction because I believe it applies to everyone. But the verbiage at that time is very Old Testamentish because when he wrote, most of them were still only Jewish Christians. But the Gentile Christians are not excluded. Now, if you want to have my rationale, then you have to uh, read a commentary, all right? It's a long rationale. Now, one of the other reasons why we believe it's an early book, because Acts 15 doesn't come into the picture. And you know what he said in Acts 15? He made the, he really put his uh, fist down biblically and said the Gentiles are part of the church of Jesus. Now, you don't find any reference to that in his booklet, nor do you find anything about the destruction of Jerusalem in his booklet. So those are reasons to believe that it's really an early book, and in my estimation, it is the earliest book written um, in the New Testament canon. Secondly, it is a love letter. When I preached it one time through James, uh, after four messages, uh, the pastor and the elder, the main elder of the church, came up to me and said, Now, we have heard enough about holiness. When are you going to talk about love? And I said to him, sir, if you had talked, asked me to speak on John 3.16, I would have talked about love. So if you ask me to talk about James, I teach you what James is talking about. And then I said to myself, I have to, uh, I have to um, um, give an introduction to my James book to show everybody that it is a love letter. God's love is always unconditional. I used to hate that term because, you know, love is unconditional. You can live the way you do. But now I think I can use the term as long as you know that God's word is also, love is also anti-conditional. Unconditional, in spite of our sin, anti-conditional, against our sin, and reconditioning to change us. Until you come in, until you become in mint condition. All right. So that is the love of the Almighty. Now, love is a desire to be one with an object, to rejoice when you get that object, and do everything to become one. And that's exactly what James is doing in his booklet. He wants to. I want to be one with you. I love you. I want to be loved brothers. Be loved brothers. See, that's why I'm a man in black, because uh, it is a rather dark book, but he says, uh, uh, beloved, beloved, beloved. So I have white socks, okay? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, beloved brothers. And you say, well, if, you, if we are beloved brothers, why do you hit us as you do? I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, uh, any rate, any, any rate uh, he, he wants to be one with us in his teaching. He delights when we are one with him. And he does everything 
to become one with us. And we know that because he died a martyr's death. All right? So those are really some introductory remarks. Now, um, uh, secondly, um, um, in terms of the biblical, theological um, function and place of the book of James, we know that we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, ladies and gentlemen, an Old Testament and a New, New Testament. And in my estimation, James is the ceiling of the Old Testament and the ground floor of the New Testament. The old, uh, what does the Old Testament want to accomplish? And that's what James is talking about. In other words, he summarizes the Old Testament and then it becomes the ground floor for the New Testament. And because it's an early book, uh, that makes sense. And uh, people always say, well, how does James stack up to Paul? And Luther is one of the culprits in that area. And he said, I don't like James because he doesn't talk about uh, justification by faith. And uh, Luther put a Paul over the book of James. And that Paul was not really lifted until the 1980s when people began to write commentaries on James as a man who was a standalone in terms of his own rights and message. Now, Luther was dismissed uh, by the church benevolently. Uh, if I tell people, throw James out of the Bible, I hope that you uh, kick me out of the church. But uh, Luther is such a big man, so bear with Luther, all right? Uh, and um, the Paul was terrible. Now, the church said it is legal currency, all right? But James ended up like a $2 bill. It's legal currency, but nobody uses it. And Paul is a $1 bill, and everybody loses it, uses it. So my question is not how does James stack up to Paul, but how does Paul stack up to James? Now, you know the big discussion about justification by faith, and I have come to the conclusion, and most people recently come to the same conclusion. People always say, well, how is it possible? Justification by works, justification by faith. Well, they use the same type of justification, and they try to wiggle themselves out of the, co the controversy. And I don't think you have to wiggle yourself out of the controversy when you recognize the difference between demonstrative and declarative justification. Demonstrative justification that you show yourself to be righteous and declarative that you are declared righteous. So James talks about you must show that you are righteous. And Paul says you must show that you are declared to be righteous. And so they stand back to back and they fight different enemies. Antinomians are fought by... Uh, the Apostle James, 
and uh, works righteousness is fought by the Apostle Paul. But they are totally and completely friends, as you also notice in the, in, uh, the New Testament. Now, uh, furthermore, we know that there is a uh, progression between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant is very much focused on the law. If you go to read through the Old Testament, law, it's always law-centered. The prophets, whatever, whatever. What does God tell us? How what does God commend us? Now, the law in the Old Testament and in the Scriptures has four purposes. There is the substantial purpose to show what holiness is. There is the methodological purpose that shows you that you are a sinner. There's the pedagogical purpose. You need Jesus. And there's the triumphant purpose, namely, be holy like I am holy. Well, you are never, can never use the law to be justified after you're justified. Uh, you are justified so that you can fear God and you can be holy. And so James focuses on the triumphant aspect, okay? James does not talk about also the substance aspect. He does not talk about um, uh, the, the methodological aspect. He doesn't talk about the pedagogical aspect. That is not his purpose. So you see when people say, well, I used to believe in James and I am a, a, a a post-mill reconstructionist, as somebody says, and then I saw Galatians and I recognized, throw it out and become um, a hyper-grace man. So from a hyper-law, you become a hyper-grace man. And, you see, <laughs> and let me put it this way. If you tilt, you're going to capsize. But if you first tilt to the one side and tilt to the other side, then I throw up my hands, you know. I don't believe in hyper-grace and I don't believe in hyper-law. We call it complementarity of truth. And let me tell you, by way of um, in, intermezzo, the greatest sin in the church is the sin against the complementarity of truth. God is love. No, God is holy. God is holy. No, God is love. God is one. No, God is three. God is three. No, God is one. God is sovereign. No, we are responsible. We are responsible. No, God is sovereign. <laughs> it's a yo-yo. <laughs> you know, when you put it in your mind, you put a one in, the other one goes out. Because the mind has single occupancy only, it's like a Motel 6. <laughs> but the heart, is, the heart is like a Hilton. I used to say Marriott, but I don't like Mormonism. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so it is a, it's a Marriott, and uh, it's a double occupancy. And that's the heart. Is, uh, Ecclesiastes says there's eternity in the heart. So uh, my heart has two is a is a is a king a boutique hotel, and uh, there are two king beds, sovereignty and responsibility, and they smile at each other, and uh, holiness and love, and they smile at each other, and of course if you get married, you better get a, a boutique hotel too, otherwise you're going to fight, all right? Because that's also complementarity of truth, uh, as uh, Tony Evans once said. Uh, don't try to figure out God. You cannot even figure out your own wife. Uh, 
or your own husband. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Ah, okay. That's complementary of truth. Now, are you going to fight or are you going to say, well, we stay in the same uh, boutique hotel and we praise God for what God has given to the other. And if you don't do that, you're going to have a king-size problem if you're a tyrant and a, and a queen-size problem if you're a feminist. <laughs> All right? So that is a little intermezzo. All right? Now, we know that when James talks about a triumphant use of the law, he talks about the new covenant. The new covenant says, I will take the heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. I wash you of all your filth, and I put the Holy Spirit within you. And let me tell you something, when I put an infrastructure in the church, in evangelism, I have the way to God, I will remove your heart of stone, I will cleanse you from all your filth, I put my Holy Spirit within you. Three deadly problems to three saving solutions through the grace of the triune God. And it's my privilege to tell you that the last three weeks I share this gospel, also a little track, to three or four people, and three or four people call on the name of the Lord. Because they began to recognize the infrastructure, and the infrastructure is not in the DNA of the PCA or the OPC. Superstructure. Superstructure. Doctrine. And I love the superstructure. That's not the issue. But Abraham Kuyper had the superstructure that is not one square inch in this world of which Jesus doesn't say it is mine. But he had no infrastructure. And the whole, all of the Reformed Church in the Netherlands collapsed as a result of it. So I won't go into details in that, but I want to tell you it's extremely important. But as I told you also, I'm going to go back to my early years, and I work now on the superstructure. And that is the book of James. Now... The New Covenant is Trinitarian, and the New Covenant is triadic. I already showed it was triadic. It deals with regeneration, a heart transplant. It deals with justification, get rid of your filth. And it deals with sanctification. Uh, the Bible, if you have a sense of humor, uh, the Bible says that the heart is like a cobra. Uh, the past is like a dung. And the life is like poison. And that is why God says, I am sorry I made you and I'm going to wipe you out. He did not wipe you out because you owed uh, McDonald's, you stole uh, one hamburger from McDonald's or something, or you owe somebody $500. No, 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 no. You're a rebel at heart. You committed cosmic treason. And your past is filthy as dung. And your life is destructive as poison. So when I am uh, any length of time in a congregation and I explain it all, I said, well, let me explain to you uh, how I apply it. Lady, are you, uh, do you have children? I said, uh, no, uh, no. Oh, somebody says she's pregnant. They said, well, I didn't know that, but thank you for telling me. So you have a little fetus in, um, in you and it is a human being. So every morning, you put your hand on, the, on your tummy and say, good morning, little cobra, good morning, little dung, good morning, little poison. <laughs> you need Jesus. Now, I bet you never did it. I never did it. <laughs> but now I do it because I meet grieving parents and grandparents every time. 
Everywhere I go, grieving parents and grandparents. Right? Why? Because we have not, we have not been honest with them. If you had lived before the flood, it would have drowned you. And put it in your pipe and smoke it for a little while. Why do I say that? Because that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Unless you have a heart transplant, Nicodemus, you're not going to make it. And uh, I want you to think that through for a little while. I'm not going to give you a quick uh, statement, except Jesus and everything will be fine. No, 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 no. Nicodemus, you have a cobra heart. And let it sink in. And you have a filthy past. Woman at the well, you're a hellbound adulteress. And you have a poisonous life, Jews in John, John 8. If you don't want to uh, uh, be in the Word, you cannot be my disciple because it will set you free of your daily sin. So here Jesus brings out those three elements, Nicodemus, woman at the well, Je the Jews in John 8. And uh, Paul, Peter uh, tells us that in uh, Acts 2, repent, get a new heart, and you get forgiveness of sins, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul uh, does it in his Romans. Justification, regeneration, sanctification. And in, and in 2 Corinthians, regeneration, justification, sanctification. And Philippians, regeneration, sanctification, sanctification. And we haven't seen that for, for, for centuries. And that's why the church has gone down. And we have a man in the White God had a man in the White House who tells us... Uh, that uh, if you don't honor homosexuals, uh, you have a problem. Civil rights. And he told the, his African counterparts, if you don't uh, give uh, leeway and promote homosexuality, if, uh, if that is uh, wanted, uh, I will stop paying uh, your bills for you. Well, why do we have a president like that in the, in, in, in the White House? Well, the church hasn't been told. You're a cobra. And you need the heart of Jesus. And I mentioned that to the Minister of uh, Finance in, uh, Uganda and, uh, in Uganda. And after 30 to 20 years of me telling him that, he gave me a call. He says, finally, understand. Unless you have a heart change, you can only produce sin, splendid sins. Think about that. If you're a cobra, you can only produce splendid sins. Well, it's wonderful to have good airplanes, you know, uh, to good roads, etc. I look at those uh, good roads and say, Lord, they are, they are your common graces, and so they are gifts, and I thank you. They're splendid sins, and I have to tell the people who produce them that that is not going to get them to heaven. And thirdly, they are silent summonses to repentance. Now, how often... Do we hear people say that in the church? And I did not get it overnight, but slowly but surely, they began to dawn on me, you see. All those common graces, this table. It is, thank you, Lord, it's a gift. I can use it. And this pen, and this technology. The Lord, if it's produced by, uh, by an unbeliever, it is a splendid wickedness. And uh, your common graces uh, tell us to repent, so this tells me, Repent, and the church can verbalize it and tell the people. Uh, all those common graces, they tell you that you must repent. Because in the day of judgment, it all will be taken away from you. So those are infrastructural elements. But James is not talking about that. 
James is not talking about the triadic gospel. That is not his focus. The new covenant is also Trinitarian. God the Father makes the promise, God the Son makes the production, and God the Holy Spirit makes the transportation. I tell people in Africa, if I promise you a Mercedes-Benz, would you be happy? Yes. Now, what if I promise you a Mercedes-Benz, but there's no factory that can produce it? What is the, what's the promise worth? Nothing. Now, I have the promise, you have the production, the Mercedes-Benz is ready in Frankfurt, Germany, but there's no transportation. What is the, what is the promise in the production worth? Nothing. So I tell people, if, you say, if I say hallelujah, you say yeah. That means God. Praise God. So I say hallelujah, and they say hallelujah. Yeah, I say wrong. Because God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So from now on, you say hallelujah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hallelujah. Ah, and, and, if, and if you teach that to your church, they begin to honor the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When, and you, when did you say good morning to the Holy Spirit recently? I asked that a Pentecostal pastor. He said, well, I've never done that before. I said, well, then you had no transportation that day. And I told him uh, the next day, uh, did you say good morning? He said, uh, I forgot. The next morning, I said, did you say good morning to the Holy Spirit? He said, not yet. <laughs> I phoned him from the United States. Did you say good morning to the Holy Spirit? He said, every day. There was a lady in, uh, in a conference. He said to me, I started to say good morning to the Holy Spirit. And a doctor in Chattanooga, he said, Henry, I started to say good morning to the Holy Spirit. And every day is the joy of the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian and triadic. And if we don't preach the Trinitarian and triadic new covenant, we don't preach the new covenant according to the word of God. And I wish that would be taught in seminaries. Not taught in seminaries. I never heard it. Two seminaries. Thoroughly reformed. They don't know how uh, God, Jesus produces the three solutions. How the Holy Spirit transports the three solutions. It is not clear. Now they, they know all the elements somehow. But... Uh, you can have all the elements of a Volkswagen Beetle, but it doesn't mean that you have a total, a total uh, uh, vehicle <laughs> and you're not able to drive it very much, all right? Okay, now, in terms of biblical theological approach, he is the ceiling of the Old Testament, the ground floor of the New Testament, and he says, my interest is only the Father and sanctification. I'm not talking about Jesus much. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit at all. I want you to understand the Father and I want you to understand holiness. And he does the same thing that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't talk about himself at all. There's no Christology in the Sermon on the Mount. And somebody said it's a deficient document because it's not Christological. I said, come on, man. The Lord Jesus honors the Father. And if you don't honor the Father, you have an anemic Christ and you have an anemic Holy Spirit. And James says, I'm interested in the Father. And I'm interested in the purpose of the Father. He wants you to be holy. So I'm going to talk about those two elements. That's awesome, isn't it? 
Isn't that awesome? Just like Esther, he never talks about God, the book of the writer. Now, Esther, come on, man. Old lady, whatever, whoever wrote it. You don't talk about God at all. I said, well, that's not my purpose. I want to, I want to show one thing. Providence, 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 providence. I want to hammer that home. I don't know whether you're, whether you're children and they are, uh, and they are obnoxious. Huh? Providence. <laughs> Your husband is not doing what he should do. Providence. Your wife, similar. Providence. Potholes, providence. You see God. And that's what Esther is after. And the Holy Spirit says, don't clutter up my book with the Father and the, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That comes later. Don't clutter up James with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit. That's not my purpose. I will get to it, but not now. I tell you, it took me 40 years to, to finally get all this together, you see. So, so this is not happen, didn't happen overnight. And I, I'm very thankful that Mark now that told me to talk about James. At first I said to myself, why didn't he talk to me? I told me to talk about evangelism. But I'm very thankful that he talked to me about the superstructure. It's just awesome, 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 awesome. Now, when you then go in the systematic theological uh, uh, area, um, when people read the book of James, they say it's a loose cannon, scattered all over the place. Um, and even the conservatives uh, say, well, we don't know how to put it all together. But there are verbiage relationships and small sections they hang together. But by and large, don't even try to make it a one composition because you're going to rest the book. You're going to... You're gonna you're gonna warp it. Just be happy with gem after gem after gem after gem. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I will show you in the third section that there's an exquisite tapestry in the book, and it is written by the Holy Spirit. So don't tell me there is no method behind his madness. Okay. And if I don't see it, it's because I don't see it. And as Jonathan Owen says, when you try to read and interpret the Bible, you better pray, 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 pray that you see wondrous things in your laws. Because if you don't do that, you won't get it. And as Nancy DeMoss said on the radio, you want to get stuff out of it, meditate, 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 look, look, look at it again and again and again and again and again. And people don't look at it again, right? Are you reading your Bible? I have a little song. Read through Scripture four times a year, four times a year, four times a year. Pray through Scripture four times a year until Christ is formed in me, not in you, but in me. And I had an academic dean. was a good friend of mine. He's vice president of, of academics in uh, my university, college. And uh, I uh, sang this little song to him, and he laughed benevolently, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, as friends can laugh. I said, well, my dear brother, it's in the Bible. 
I won't repeat the whole thing here now. I said, here's the Bible. Look at it. Galatians 7, verse 6. Ooh. After five minutes, I said, there's no Galatians 7, verse 6. I said, read through Scripture four times a year, and you'll know there's no Galatians 7, verse 6. 95% of the people fail it. And even this morning, I read a big piece out of Acts again. And I saw something that I'd never seen before. When the apostles, every day they go into the temple and they go from house to house. So what, does the, what must the church do in evangelism? Every day they must go from house to house if they want to be biblical. Now, how many pastors go even door-to-door even once a week? Less than 2%. (laughs) They don't want to follow in the footsteps of the apostles. Now, I have an answer to that because God gives evangelists, so use evangelists to lead you. That's another matter. But I read that this morning, and I just amazed. They go from house to house. And that's why they filled the streets of Jerusalem in the name of Jesus. And I didn't get that for years until this morning. So show me new and wonderful things in the word of the living God. So secondly, uh, there there is a giftedness, systematic, theologically speaking. There's a giftedness in the Bible and I cannot go into details. I, I, you find it in the, in the, <clears throat> you find it in my syllabus on evangelism. Uh, there are three offices: evangelist, pastor, teacher, and deacon. Left, according to the Reformed uh, tradition. Some people say no evangelist anymore, but I think that's a wrong tradition. Uh, I won't go into details about that. But um, uh, there's also three gift areas. The gift area in evangelism, Matthew 4. The gift area of teaching, speaking the word. And the gift area of, um, of serving. And the gift area in speaking has two aspects, teaching and exhorting. Now it's very interesting that one of the uh, early writers who said that James is a loose cannon, he said, now what is the nature of that book? He said, exhortations, 107 imperatives and that well everybody criticized him it is not as bad as it looks like they never embrace him in the area of exhortation James is an exhorter not a teacher Paul is a teacher who also exhorts James is an exhorter who also teaches And uh, if you want to uh, be honest with me, when people say, why do you like uh, James? I never knew it until I recognized that I have the gift of exhortation. Move! And exhorters, uh, they have pain in the neck. (laughs) Teachers are happy when you do your stuff. So they allow people to be uh, pythons, you know. Uh, you, you take your little uh, piglet and uh, you digest it for a whole week, half asleep. And then next week you come back for another piglet in the church. Uh, exhorters are not happy until you do your stuff. And that's what James says. If you think you, you hear the word, hear the word, wonderful, 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 
hey, you delude yourself and you don't do it. And the Bible says, exhort each other daily. I was a young pastor, a black pastor. I love him. He loves me. And I exhorted him a little bit. And he said, uh, you're, you're beating me up. I said, you go to Hebrews 3.13. It was just last uh, Thursday. Hebrews 3.13. Exhort each other daily. He said, I exhort you. And you say, you beat me up. Come on, man. When was the last time you were exhorted? Other than what I did right now. He said, I don't remember. He said, well, that's why you're still anemic. So you want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And James is an exhorter. He does not want you to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's awesome, isn't it? He is an exhorter. 105 or 6 or 7 imperatives. Go, do, 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 do. And uh, I always say it's amazing that the first church in Jerusalem was willing to put up with him. You see, if you did not know um, the book of James, and I would say you are an adulterer and an adulteress. He said, wait a minute. Well, James says that we are adulterers and adulteresses. Well, if you hear that, that's why James is a man in black, all right, quote-unquote. Uh, if, you, if, if you hear that, you say, now, James, uh, uh, don't overdo it. He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Paul never says that. Paul is a teacher. He says, if you don't love Jesus, you're accursed. Wonderful. But James says, you're an adulterer and an adulteress. That's an exhorter. And that is what I think drew me to James, because, and I did not know that. It, it just was a breath of fresh air to me when I read it. Awesome. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's the giftedness. Some people have the gift of evangelism, and they should become evangelists. Some people have the gift of speaking, and they should become pastors, teachers. Some people have the gift of service, they may have become deacons. And I was so thankful that my brother uh, uh, Mark said to me that somebody told him that 40 years ago in, uh, in, in Vasella. Don't put people in evangelistic office until they have the gift of evangelism. Don't make them pastor teacher until they have the, you show them the gift of teaching. And don't uh, put them in the diaconal office until they have the gift of serving. Now, I cannot go into details how to define them, but I want to say this, if you have the gift in that area, you are unstoppable. A friend of mine said, uh, I'm an evangelist. I said, no, you are not. And he was very annoyed. <laughs> and he said, well, let me ask you one question. If you could do only one thing for the rest of your life, going from door to door, speaking in the pulpit or serving, what would you do? He said, uh, in the pulpit, I said, that's your gift. And later on, he said to me, I do the work of an evangelist because the pastor teacher must do the work of an evangelist, must be in the field at least uh, once a week. And I think in seminaries, uh, the teacher should say to the people, if you want us to make, uh, want us to make you a pastor teacher, that's wonderful, but remember, you must be in the field at least once a week. And we show it. It's not done. That's why we have pastor teachers who go into new works and they are not evangelistic and they, the church remains small. 
And my brother Mark said that also earlier. I was so thankful that we see totally eye to eye on this. And that's rare. We see eye to eye on things. If a seminary professor is not out in the field at least once a week, he does not do the mark, the work of an evangelist, fire him if he doesn't want to repent. I'm an exhorter, as you know. <laughs> Sometimes I have to bite my tongue. <laughs> Often. Oh. Don't say it. They're going to hate you. <laughs> See, I mean that. It's the word. That's what James says. Now, it's interesting enough. Uh, James... Uh, knows that there are two elements in what we must do. We must make disciples, we must train them. Now, he doesn't talk about evangelism. And people say, well, you don't talk about evangelism. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. James is a revival man. He saw the revival in the early church. He saw 3,000 people come to know Jesus. He was, the, he was the leader of the congregation. When something happens, Peter says, talk to James. So he knew about everything about evangelism. But that is not his niche today. I wish he could make an appearance for an hour. He would say to you, I exhort you to do two things, evangelize and teach them to observe. See? But the Holy Spirit said that's not his purpose. His purpose is that you see God the Father. Holy, the Holy One of Israel. And if you don't see God the Father, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you have an anemic Christ, an anemic Holy Spirit. The traditional view was, the Reformed view, that the Old Testament is the book of God the Father. The Gospels is the book of God the Son. And Acts and Onwards is the book of the Holy Spirit. And I can prove that to you from the book of John. And if Frank, uh, I do not have enough time. You stand there in front of the Father. I'm sorry I made you. You have a cobra heart. You have a dung past. You have a poisonous life. That's what I'm showing you. And now you understand why I'm sending you to my son. To take care of all three problems. And now you understand why I talk about the Holy Spirit and the transportation. That will come in the gospel, that will come in Acts and onward. But now in the Old Testament, seek God, seek holiness. And James says that is the sealing of the Old Testament. See God the Father. And then tremble at his word, the book of Isaiah. And I promise you when people begin to have a new hermeneutic, they are not sure um, whether there is a historical Adam and Eve. We are not sure that the flood is worldwide. We are not sure that there are 48 hours. You know what I mean? Let me tell you something. They don't tremble at the word of God. Now, I'm not saying that people who tremble in general cannot make mistakes, okay? I'm very mild about people, but I'm not mild about truth. They don't tremble. There's a man in Westminster Seminary who eventually said there is no historical Adam and Eve. 
And at first, uh, he could be retained, but the board finally said, you've got to get rid of him. And I'm very thankful. In the Netherlands, exactly the same thing happened. And it continues. They nibble at the edges of the word of God, and they end up destroying the core. Because they don't see the Father, they don't tremble at him, and they don't say, Lord, I have a cobra heart, Lord, I have a dung path, Lord, I have a poisonous life, what are, you gonna, what are I going to do about it? They don't tremble. And James trembles, I tell you. Paul trembles. When he was called for three days, he could think about, in, when he was physically blind, he was spiritually, he saw, and he looked at his past, he said, Lord, 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 I was a cobra, I was dung, a dunghill, I was a poison pill, ooh, for three days, ooh. And every time that people are converted by calling on the name of the Lord for the three solutions, they become powerful. I've seen it again and again. A man in August, for three days, three, for three years, I told him, you have these three problems, finally. He said, when is the time are you going to call on the name of the Lord? Well, I'm still thinking about it. I said, well, apparently you're not, you're, you're not convicted. If you're convicted, you know you're drowning. You would cry out, but you don't do that. And I will never ask you to call on the name of the Lord until I know you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. It means nothing. But, sir, while I'm not asking you, when God says, I command you to repent, I command you to call on the name of the Lord because you messed up this creation. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Let us sink in. Two days later, he couldn't make it the next day, but the day after that, he called on the name of the Lord. And now he goes to church, he's taking care of his kids, you know, and it's awesome. The cobra heart is replaced with the heart of Jesus. The, the, the dung past is replaced by the, by the righteousness of Jesus. The, the poison life is replaced by the holiness of Jesus. If you don't go deep, you don't go high. And James goes very high, all right? Of course he believes in evangelism. But that's not his focus. His focus is the Father and, this, and sanctification in the footsteps of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's amazing how they run parallel. And he is a revival man, ladies and gentlemen. And I won't go into details because revival has 12 marks. Uh, uh, Al is going to talk about revival tomorrow. I have a 70-page, 80-page paper on what is revival. And I would love you to read it. Because we don't know what revival is. All I can tell you tell you that when your revival hits, you have 12 marks. You have a fullness of the whole, uh, a mighty presence of the Holy Spirit. You have mighty prayer, mighty preaching, mighty conversions, mighty assemblies, mighty holiness, mighty generosity, mighty evangelism, mighty impact on society, under under mighty leadership, in mighty combat, in total, in mighty pursuit of the grand command of making disciples and teaching to observe. That's what revival is. I know it's a mouthful. I hope that it uh, spurs you on to read it. Now I have exactly half an hour left. 
And now we go to the content theology. We go to the Father, and we go to holiness. Now, in terms of uh, uh, there are four major points, and they fit perfectly. It is not a grab bag. It's not a loose cannon. James tells us the way to holiness, to practical godliness. The first element are the trials. The second element is the word of God. Then in the chapter 2, he talks about the principles of practical godliness. He talks about the law. And he talks about faith. And he talks about the implementation of practical godliness, the obstacles that you have in you, indwelling sin. Then the nature of victory, you get it from above. And then the requirements. You have to humble yourself. You have to cast yourself upon the Lord. It's all in the, in the book, in the outline. Out, outline. And if you wish uh, to go into details, you give me your email, and I can email it to you even tonight. All right? But it takes a You can skip the introduction. It's 200 pages about all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and you can go to the passage that you like. Then the range of practical godliness. Uh, you talk to the outside world. You meet outside world. You meet uh, other people, and you meet the future. Then you talk about yourself. You face yourself. You're either rich or you're poor. Then you face your conditions. You're either um, merry, when it's fine, and you're prayerful. And ladies and gentlemen, that covers the waterfront of life. There's not one element that you can bring up that I cannot refer to James. He is awesome. He is awesome. Somebody said, when you start preaching, don't tell people that, you, that, that the truth is awesome. Show it is awesome. <laughs> but this is awesome. Trials. Now, if I uh, would uh, have the way to God, a uh, way to practical godliness from, the, from God's perspective, the principles from the words as perspective, implement, implementation, this is the, from God's perspective, from the words perspective, and this is um, implementation from the Christian's perspective, and the range from the world's perspective, because you have to enter, you have a whole world around you. Now, if I would uh, teach you practical godliness, I would start with the word, sanctify them through your truth, but James doesn't do that. Now, the introduction is very short, and I know why, I think. The Holy Spirit says to James, make it short, because I want to get this big truth across. Don't be too verbose. Let's leave that to Paul. <laughs> I'm kidding. Not quite. <laughs> Not totally. It's awesome. 
count it pure joy. Well, when have you heard people give you that as the first uh, order of business in the church? The first order of business. If you pass this, you pass every test. I was in uh, the airport in uh, Uganda. There was a lady. She said, you're a man of God. Help me. Tears, tears. I said, how do you know I'm a man of God? He said, well, you preached in my church. He said, okay. (laughs) 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 And she said, "Uh, my son needs a heart operation. (coughs) And we started to... um, work on uh, some funds to get together. My husband had a little taxi. I have a little job. He had a small job. Somebody sold the taxi. Ruined it. And you gone to nobody has insurance. So it's gone. The money is gone from our little account. I cannot bring food on the table more than uh, 10 days out of the month. Help. What would you say? Well, I was well versed in James, so I thought I'm going to tell her what the Holy Spirit said. He said, young lady, if you listen to me, you're going to make it. If you don't listen to me, you're not going to make it. I give you four words. Are you ready? Yes. Count it pure joy. Now, I'll tell you, if I would say that in an American context, it would kick me out of the house. I promise you. As one of the commentators said that there was a man who was on a safari, going on a safari, and he broke his leg and he couldn't go, and there was a big blustering fellow who said, well, I think the Bible has something to say about it, count it pure joy, and the commentator says, I hope that the man, the patient, will take the Bible as and throw it in his face, because that is not how you comfort people. I said to myself, if I had enough money, I would buy all the commentaries from the, from the printer, I would burn it. This is what the Holy Spirit says. And I hope and pray that it will be preached so eventually when you have a heart attack, huh? and you come to me and say, I have a heart attack, but don't worry, Pastor, I count it pure joy. <laughs> and then I have compassion. All right, let's work on the heart attack. Maybe can we do this or that or whatever. But you take the words out of my mouth. Because you know the word of God. And it's not done. In five minutes, her face began to shine. And she saw God. And she made it. Somebody in the UK paid for her heart attack. I started to pay for a little piece of property and a house and the school fees. And then to boot, uh, to, 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 to top it off, after a year, uh, the husband said, I'm going to go for another model. So he left the house. She was there by herself, the three children. And uh, he would come home from time to time for sex. 
I said, this is my house. I bought it. You, you lock and key out. He goes. But what you can say to him, go to the pastor, and if you worked for the, with the pastor for a whole year, then you, can, uh, then you can consider taking him back if the pastor says he's okay. Well, I thought this will get rid of the guy forever. And that was my plan. He went to the pastor. And he did exactly what the pastor said for a whole year. He was converted. And the pastor said, you may take him back. And I thought, oh, no, no. He was so godly, she was all God. She took him back. And then she told the story in a woman's conference. And she got the first prize, and she and her husband were shipped, were uh, flown to Mombasa for a weekend to celebrate. And a year and a half ago, he died of a heart attack or whatever. And the whole family misses him dearly. That's my God. That's my God. Count it joy, pure joy. And if you don't know how to handle uh, I cannot go into all the detail. If you don't know how to handle it, go and pray. Because you know why, why you must pure joy? Because it makes you endure. And endurance makes you perfect. Right, Mark? You had trouble in your pastor. I had trouble in my pastor. You endured, and all of a sudden you see the beauty. Nehemiah... He saw the, the wall for 100 years, it was gone, or 80, 90 years, it was gone. It looked like an impossibility. And then he started, and in the middle, uh, people became discouraged, and people began to become very sinful. He endured, and the wall was built in 52 days. Here's a principle. And if you don't know how to handle it, go to the, the, uh, the Word, go to God in prayer, but make sure that you are not wavering. You make sure that you believe that God is going to answer it. And he's going to answer it because he's going to answer it in the word, which is secondly. And incidentally, James says uh, the, the trials are of, two, of two, two parts. It is either riches or it is poverty. And one of my students said, sir, sir, are you sure? The trials are either riches or poverty. I cannot uh, go through it because of the time ago and the details. I said, yes. I said, well, then I prefer riches. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to change my mind in a hurry because the Bible never says it is uh, harder for a poor man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through a needle. <laughs> riches is a, greater, is a greater trial. I promise you. The United States is rich. The Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, homosexuality, put them in the uh, office. Why? Because we're rich. We don't need God any longer. We do it ourselves. And you go to Korea and Uganda. I tell you, the Bible says, if you become rich, don't, don't forget me. The book of Deuteronomy. So rich is a greater trial, and if, and if you recognize that the beauty of trials is to make you holy, then if I say to you, you're poor, say, no, I'm not poor, I'm rich, I belong to Jesus. And if you say to a man who a rich man, you are rich, no, 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 I'm poor, because I'm willing to give everything away. 
That is the rock bottom reality. <laughs> if I would start a church and say, if you want to be a member of the church, you must be willing to sell your possessions, I don't think I get any members. Or when you have the Holy Spirit, you're more than happy to do that. You see. So we are not as uh, powerful as we think we are. And so when I go into Uganda, they're poor. So guess what? They know they need something. And I walk in their house and say, what do you want to talk about? Jeez, okay, tell me. He had 150 people calling on the name of the Lord in the, sp in the span of two weeks. They are, not, they are not less unregenerate. They all cobras. They all dung. They all poison. When you tell them. And that's why I love to preach in jail. They say, yes, I know. <laughs> I talk to moral people say, wait a minute. Take those religious people, they kill you. And Luther noticed that. He said to the Pope, you are, you are the cobra, you have dung, you have poison. And Pope said, kill him. Uh, you see, and that's why Jesus says you, the world's going to hate you. But you see, poor and rich, and if you and and, and 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 why do you fall? Because of the indwelling sin in you, the lust that is on your inside. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be. I want to be rich. I want to retain my riches. And it's poverty in everything, and riches in everything, and everything is partly poor and partly rich. Every everything. So, ma'am, you're partly poor because you're not a man, and you're partly poor because you're not a woman. <laughs> That's a little joke. <laughs> Very little, apparently, because nobody laughs. <laughs> all, all right. Now, you may be rich in uh, wealth, in health, but you may be poor in wealth. You know, everybody is rich and poor, so uh, later on we're going to talk how to, how to respond to the riches and to the poverty. In fact, I'll tell you now, if you are rich, then rejoice and thank God. Praise the Lord. If you're poor, pray. All right, but that's, 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 uh, uh, that, that comes later. So here you see it, and then the Bible says in that beautiful verse, um, all good gift and perfect gift comes from the Lord. And people, the commentators, and you know that verse, right? And uh, the commentators say, well, this is the same thing, but it is kind of poetic. I said, no, no, no. The first one is every good giving and then every perfect gift. Every trial is a good giving. And every answer of God is a perfect gift. Whew. Now, I don't know whether you like to have a, a head of hair or whether you shaved it off, but... <laughs> <laughs> If you want to have a hair, head of hair and you don't have any hair, that is a good giving of God. And then you buy a wig. No, no, no. That's a perfect gift. No, no, no. No, no. You see, it's a good giving. God good gives. And that is, it's, it's awesome. And I don't live that way all the time, I promise you. Somebody cuts me off, it's not a good giving. It's a fool. <laughs> you know, and if somebody uh, shoots you in the leg, you say, Lord, is a good giving. Uh, thank you, Lord. I praise you. And now I've called the police. Uh, all right, but you don't see it. <laughs> I, I tell you, I could talk about this throughout the day until 12 o'clock, and you can fall out a window, and I put you back to life, and I continue until 6 o'clock the next morning, <laughs> you see? Uh, because, because I'm unstoppable in exhortation, and I love to do that. Now, you go to the Word, all right? That it, the, the Word, you go to the Word. The Word could regenerate you. 
James never talks about regeneration until this point. Once. That's not his point. But when you're regenerated, now you're going to be sanctified by the word. He doesn't talk about declarative justification. He talks about demonstrative justification. So you go to the word. And when you go to the word, you listen very carefully. You don't talk back and you don't become angry. But you read it, read it, read it. And then you're going to obey it. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this because of the time, but uh, don't only listen, listen, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And if you don't do it, you delude yourself. You delude your own heart. All right? And then the very next point, the principles, law, law. Ah, don't... uh, don't um, uh, sometimes my my memory cells they were partly they were partly uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen they were partly siphoned off of my I I could not think of the word partiality and I, when you get my age you get that. It's not senior moments, senior stretches. Uh, All all right. Partiality. He said, well, if you're partial, you put a poor man always in the back and a rich man always in the front. Uh, The poor man maybe is a child of God. And you put a child of God in the... It's terrible. And a rich man can sue you. And you put him always in the front. Doesn't make sense. So when you go and... um, Uh, ask for a a conduct in a certain situation, you're going to ask yourself what makes sense. And then he says, let's go to the law of God. Is it loving? No. And let it then go to the commandments. First of all, the summary. Is it love? No. Do you love the poor man? No. Do you love the rich man? No. The poor man, you put him in a place of honor, and the rich man, you may say, I want to share the gospel with you. All right? And then uh, uh, James says, now let's take a look at the commandments. Uh, you know that it's wrong to commit adultery, right? Right, right. He said, well, it's also wrong to murder. It's a transgression of the law, murder. And partiality is a transgression of the law, so partiality is murder. I had an example of a friend of mine who asked me a question. He said, what am I going to do with a deacon who uh, told, told two black ladies whom I had seen earlier this week and I invited them to church, and they were not Christians. And come to church, and I'll talk to you later. I kept them out of the church. He said, what are you going to do with that guy? I said, well, tell him he's a murderer. And then tell him either you repent, and you go to the ladies and ask forgiveness on your knees, or I'm going to excommunicate you. That's partiality. And God says, and think of the, think of, use your, your, your sanctified sense, Use your law aspect, use your, your love aspect, use your law aspect. And then uh, how about the, the judgment? You think of the judgment aspect. So all, whenever you, have a, whenever you s- are facing an issue, first of all, what makes sense? How about love? How about law? How about the judgment? Now, I cannot go into details, as you understand, because of the time. And then he says, uh, faith. 
Now, you know, faith that works is dead. I already told you it is demonstrative. But uh, it's not just that works, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just faith that works is dead. Uh, I, I know that, but that's not what James is after. He said, if you want to be holy, you better go to the law. Triumphant. But you better be a person of faith. And faith is awesome. You're willing to kill your son. And you're willing to commit suicide. Abraham, kill your son. That's faith. Aye, aye, sir. He didn't even talk to his wife. He left early in the morning. I would have slept in. <laughs> he left. That's faith. Awesome. And that's the kind of faith James wants. And the people say, well, why does he talk about Rahab the harlot? Uh, you go from the top of the mountain, uh, the, uh, you go from the, from, uh, uh, the, uh, the big mountain in Nepal, uh, what is that, the Everest, you go from the Everest, <laughs> you go to the gutter. I said, why in the world would he uh, put uh, Rahab into the picture? He said, well, um, you, you are very likely somewhere between the Mount Everest and the gutter, so James says it applies to everybody. And besides, Rahab is the Mount Everest, not Abraham. Because Abraham had the promise that the boy would come back. Rahab had a threat, I'm going to kill you. Wow. I'm going to kill you. Isn't that amazing? Now that's faith. And I have a promise that God is going to take Abraham. I mean, it's not much of a threat, you know what I mean? It's not, not much of a risk. That is your promise, okay? No problem. I wish that I could go on a safari, son, but it's your safari. But when God says, I'm going to kill you, I want to belong to you. Whew. Does that do something to you? I tell you, it did something to me. Ah. I think that in, if I ever come in a place where I can meet with both Abram and Rahab, I think I very likely will prefer Rahab, to talk to Rahab first. Okay, now just a little, another little joke. Uh, all right, all right, all right. And the implementation of, pra of practical godliness. There's poison in the tongue. Ah. Oh. And James is wonderful. The poison is, the tongue is wonderful, fantastic. A little rudder, uh, an old ship, a tongue, and a bridle. And the tongue is awesome. A little, it can boast in great things. It's true. And all of a sudden, he hits his heart. And that little beautiful piece in your body filled with poison. And it sets on fire the totality of, 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 of the world filled with deadly poison of fire and that burns everything. And then the uh, commentator says, well, the tongue is bad, but uh, uh, the uh, you can have a good, you can use the tongue right. He said, that's not what James says. You cannot use your tongue right, ever. And Paul says, it's not only the tongue, it's every one of my members. So I look at you, poison. I touch you, 
poison. I walk on the floor, no much much my knee, poison. I touch my uh, little instrument, poison. I read my Bible, poison. That's what Paul says. Paul extends. Paul is a seat, set of footnotes on James. All right, extended set of footnotes. Some people may hate me for that, but uh, let it be. All right, uh, an extended set of footnotes. There's all, the Holy Spirit says there's much more to say. When you get this centerpiece in place, you can branch out. That's indwelling sin. Now let me tell you what I tell my students in, uh, in the university. Here you have a new heart. That is number one. You have number three and number four. Three is the enemy on the inside, is indwelling sin. Wretched men that I am. And, that in, and the enemy on the outside, temptation. Now let me tell you, three plus four are always stronger than one. Always. The new heart cannot overcome that unholy alliance. Never. But one plus two is always stronger than three plus four. And that is Christ in the Holy Spirit. Christ in you. The hope and glory. So if you don't commune with Christ, I promise you, three and four are going to make mincemeat out of you. If you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, the indwelling sin is like the Grenoble plant. Radiates junk. It must be encased. And when, the, when it was encased the first time, 4,000 uh, workers died as a result of it because they were killed with the radiation. And finally, they recognized they had to put a totally new mantle around the Chernobyl plant, which they did. I'll tell you, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to radiate junk. Have you ever seen radiate junk in the, ch in the church? And in the family? And in your wife? And in yourself? Why? I don't abide in Christ. I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that comes later. But James already says you cannot overcome it. What is the nature? Above, 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 above. Come from above. Purity, whatever. Only comes from above. Every good only comes from above. That's why Colossians says, the Apostle Paul, footnote, seek for the things that are above our Christ Jesus and where you have everything there. And that's why Peter says later on, footnote, um, I, uh, God has given me everything pertaining to life and godliness by knowing Christ. Now, I don't know Christ, I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit, and I promise you, I spout junk. And that's why every t in the Reformed Church, every Sunday there is a confession of sin, but usually it's a ritual. Right? Amen, sister? Right? It's a ritual. <laughs> and riches are killers. Oh, we've done it. No, 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 no. That's why this whole confession of sin must be changed somehow. It must be, 
the Anglican book of, uh, of church order, I think it's better when it, it tells us, you know, repent, you don't get the forgiveness. You see? And we don't even know what to repent of. You see? That is why it may be a good idea, the confession of sin. We are not going to cover the whole waterfront of life, but we just take one of the commandments. So Sunday we'll take the first commandment and we read a larger catechism and say, how about it? And then the next Sunday, the second commandment or the third or whatever. And uh, maybe that is the way to do it. Uh, I don't have a, uh, have a clear-cut answer, but I know that I hate that ritual. Hate that ritual. All right? From above. And what is the requirement of sin? Have self-knowledge. When the wars and fightings come among you, do not let the pleasures that are in your members always your own pleasure. And if you uh, if, and and you 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 don't have it, you kill, even if not in uh, literally you kill in, in 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 words. Don't you know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Objectively speaking, but if you want to be a friend, you are an enemy of God. Wow. That's why the Bible says that the spirit that God made to dwell in you lusts to envy. That's your problem. Therefore, submit, uh, submit yourself to God and resist the devil. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Recognize your wretchedness before God and let your tinseltown joy turn into tears. And humble yourself before God and He will lift you up. And He tells that to the good people in the church. Like you and me, hopefully. <laughs> you see? I tell you, He's a man in black, huh? Beloved brothers and sisters. He's a man in black. He's a red tie, the blood of Jesus. It's awesome. Right? And then the range of practical God. As I told you, I could only scratch the surface. It's just a running commentary. And, and the range. When you, um, when you meet with your brothers and sisters, don't speak against them. It doesn't say you cannot slander. No, 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 no. Don't talk about slander. You can may not speak against somebody. How often have you spoken against somebody? Many times. Don't do it. If your wife or your husband says, how about that person in the ter Stop it! I don't want to listen. Don't speak against anybody. Because if you speak against anybody, you think your word is more important than the word of God. Your law is more important than the law. The law doesn't touch it. So you, you, you think that you, you better the law and then you better God because he's the lawgiver and he is the only one who can condemn you. And don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Don't complain about others to your husband or your wife. Swallow it or confront it. And what James says, I tell you, he is sorry, sorrow, sorrow. And he says, when you go in the front and people say, well, uh, he make, uh, that is anti-capitalism because he wants to profit. No, 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 no. Make profit by all means, but do it under God. 
if the Lord wills and we live. He said, oh, that's stilted. I have to go to the bathroom if the Lord wills. You know, I said, sometimes you don't have to say it. James says, say it. You can say, I aim to do this, I intend to do that, I hope to do that. Or so. You don't have to be stilted. But you can recognize our life is like a vapor. can be taken away just like that. When I went into uh, the, the doctor, he told me, um, she told me, it's uh, uh, a routine checkup. Don't worry. Well, <laughs> I stayed there for a whole month. And when I had the operation, he said, I never should have let him go through it. I tell you, I was in the valley of the shadow of death. And I knew it. It was dark and black. I couldn't believe it. I said, Lord, I don't want it to be black again. I want it to be white. Move in to the presence of Jesus. I still cannot explain it, but I... If I ever get in a situation like that, I want it to be white. All right? Well, of the shadow of death. You can die any time. I always tell people, uh, uh, and the young people, you may die. I tell you, you could die because you're middle-aged, but I must die. I'm old. You see, but we all will die. <laughs> and if God puts you in his x-ray machine and he sees a cobra, he sees dung, and he sees poison, and that's how I evangelize, then God says, would you like to have a cobra in your house? No. Dung? No. Poison? No. In your bedroom? No, no. In your bed? No, no, no. I say, God, God says to you, no, you don't want a cobra. That's you understand, I don't want a cobra. You don't want dung. I don't want dung. You don't want poison. I don't want poison. But you should have listened to Dr. Henry when you were still alive, because now you're too late. He would have shown you the solution. You go to the cross, but there are three problems are taken away and you go to the resurrection but the three replacements come in here 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 huh that's what you want huh you want to be here or you want to be here you want to be i want to hear so well you have to call on the name of the lord otherwise you'll you'll never get there you see this is graphic and the apostle peter was graphic but i'm now going to go back to the second part of my life i go back to the first part all right, in conclusion, very quickly, uh, what, um, what is the range? Um, you, the outside world, I share that. Uh, other people, uh, your future, and uh, yourself, you're rich. What do you do when you, with your riches? Hoard it or give it? I promise you there are four times that uh, James talks about riches, and it, it's progressive. If you do not say to people, I am rich when you're poor, or I am poor when you're rich, you're going to put the rich man in the front and the poor man in the back. You're not going to help people um, when, when they need in chapter 2, and uh, you end up by building up yourself. I tell you, I wish that I could talk at length about it, but I couldn't. I can't. He said, these are... These are that's where you end up, and there's, you know that when the industrial, revo industrial revolution started in uh, Britain, all those kids have to work, 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 and the rich people became richer, and the poor people became poorer, you see? 
hoard, not giving away, and your 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 gold it is already rusting. The gold never rusts. No, no, in my eyes. And your your beautiful wardrobe it has moth hole moth holes in. No, it doesn't. In my eyes, it does have moth holes in it. Give it away. Somebody once said it's always easy to give something away that doesn't belong to you, right? Right? Very easy. Well, nothing belongs to you. So it should be easy to give it away. <laughs> and it is not. <laughs> because you're not full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't belong to me. I can miss it. Oh, I tell you. James is, ah, I won't tell you. Uh, and if you're poor, the, the Jesus is coming, so don't worry about it like the, like, the, like the farmer. It's coming, it's coming. But if you complain, he's coming differently. So poor, the fact that you're poor doesn't mean that you're heaven bound. You've got to be holy too. And then, the Apollo, and then James says, uh, um, uh, that is a very interesting statement. 70, I give 17 possibilities by commentators in my commentary. Um, but above all, do not, uh, uh, do not uh, swear. So, now, wait a minute, James. Above all? Killing people? Isn't that much worse than swearing? And they don't know why James, oh, it is, it is transition. said, no, it says above all, so it means above all. Teach me. And I now know what it means to be above all. Above all, do not use me for your terrible purposes. You swear by the altar, but you didn't swear by the ashes so you can fool people. You use me to, to destroy others. Don't be God-centered in that horrible fashion. That's above all. But be God-centered in a proper fashion. If, you're, if you are merry, give thanks. Praise the Lord. And if you, are, if you suffer, pray. Call the elders of the church. And, if, and uh, let me give you one example of, sick, of suffering. It is sickness. Call the elders of the church and the, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. That is not the prayer of the sick person, but it's the prayer of the elders. Faith of the elders. So if you invite me, I pray and I believe that you're going to be healed. Now, if you're 93 years old and, uh, you know, I say prepare prepare yourself to die. But if you are a pretty healthy individual, I pray and I believe you're going to be healed. I did that once with the Presbyterian pastor of his daughter. I said, Henry, that, that, that is presumptuous. You don't know that. He said, well, James says, when you pray, pray without wavering. So if I waver, then you shouldn't even invite me. And he said, Henry, you're a Pentecostal. I said, no, 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 I'm not a Presbyterian, I'm not a Pentecostal. The Presbyterian says, I cannot really pray because I don't know the outcome. And the Pentecostal says, I can pray, and if it doesn't, if, if it doesn't work out, it's your fault. <laughs> See, no, the, the Bible says that uh, the friends of, uh, of Daniel said, the fire doesn't, e I don't even sweat, 
draw a sweat. Why not? Ah, my God, is going to take care of me. They're presumptuous? No, my students say. Well, if you would do it, it would be presumptuous for you if somebody tries to shoot you and said, uh, uh, my God, make sure that the bullet goes around me. I said, would you say, if you say that, would you think it would be presumptuous in your case? He said, yes. He said, now why is it not presumptuous with the friends? Because of what they say after. He's taking care of us, period. We believe it with 100%. And if not, we don't draw sweat either. So if I come to you, I pray and say, Lord, I believe that God's going to heal you. If I don't believe that, don't ask me to come. I waver and you get nothing. And then you say, thank you for your faith, sir. But I will say, I, I, I hold on to your faith. But I tell the Lord, if not, no sweat either. That's what the, that's what the scripture says. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, it's beautiful. And if you sin, so I ask you, have you sinned? Yes, let's take care of that first. And to confess your faults to one another. If you do that early in time and you share, that is why I believe that everybody should have a, a, small, a small group of at least four, five people. If two people don't show up once a week, then you still have three. And share, 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 share. And show the inner side of your, of, your, of your life. Sometimes you don't want to tell the whole congregation. But if you pray with somebody for a whole year, it comes out. You trust it. And if you bring it out, Satan cannot blackmail you. And most of, most of us have hidden departments in our life that we don't want anybody to know. And James says, it's going to be trouble. And he said, pray. Now, I have uh, something about prayer. There are 12 spark plugs of prayer. And, uh, oh, and I hope to speak on prayer, Lord willing, on Sunday morning in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Because uh, they are 50 years and older, but they can at least start praying for, for Mark as he goes from door to door. So I intend to talk about prayer. And I'm more than happy to send you the stuff on prayer. Um, the, school, the first school of prayer is the Lord's Prayer. The second school of prayer is uh, the, the, the Syrophoenician woman and the Canaanite woman. And then the 12 spark plugs. I know them all by heart, but because of the time... Uh, I, I don't feel I'm too late because you stole seven minutes from the beginning and I'm stealing my right back. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. And I'll be like, I'll be like Elijah. And somebody once said, no, no. Somebody said, I want to be like Elijah. Said, no, no, that's presumptuous. said, no, that's your middle name. Elijah saw the word. He said, Lord, let the rain, rain stop. He know the word. If they repent, let the rains return. That's what he did. And that's what we must do. We must pray the word. And if you have a small group and you pray around the circle for an hour, uh, hour and a half, whatever you want to do, you pray the word and you never run out. And if you pray your own stuff after five minutes, what else do I, I'm, I'm finished. No, no, you pray the word and you go around the circle. Now I understand, I am just scratching the surface. So please, if you tell me you didn't talk about this, talk about, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You see, 1,400 pages. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to go, okay? There's a lot more to go, all right? All right, now, for one minute, any questions? Yeah. When, when do you think your um, commentary will be published? 
Well, I can send it to you with the proviso that you understand there are three small areas where I still have the research. I have to do it for the last three years, but I get invited to Uganda and to, uh, to Zambia and to South Africa and to Nigeria and to Liberia and to Rwanda and to Kenya. You understand? I love doing that. And I said, oh. <laughs> and I should, I should have self-discipline and say, I'm going to finish that. And, and I, have a, I have material on apologetics and material and all kinds of stuff, and I really have to get it out. But I love you, and, <laughs> and when he asked me to come, I said, put everything aside. I would love to share that uh, uh, with the people. Well, yeah. So what would be your top two or three or five other commentaries on James? Well, somebody uh, bought three commentaries and read mine and said, I have all the gems in the other commentaries I put in mine. He said, I've stopped reading the other commentaries. <laughs> And it's only James because I, it's 1,400 pages, you see. Um, uh, if you want to read a very good uh, commentary on the Old Testament, Joshua, uh, read uh, A.W. Pink. Not on John because he was a dispensational there, a dispensationalist, but that, that, that's really beautiful. Uh, so, yes, sir. Do you like Thomas Manton? Uh, um, oh, I used to uh, have that. Uh, I, uh, Thomas Manton, I used to make that required reading. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, I, 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 especially when he says, "In the height of Puritanism, our world is in a terrible shape." If you would, if you would come right now, he would say, "Ter, oh, bring me back, send me back." <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like uh, when John Mark was dismissed by the Apostle Paul because he was not good enough, uh, I said to the pastor, well, you know, if we were living there and uh, we would apply to take John Mark's place and say, Paul, you get, two, you get two for the price of one. Paul would say, John Mark, come back. <laughs> 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 the pastor did not like it too much. <laughs> but I believe I'm right. Anyway, but John Mark, of course, came, all, came out of it. I still believe that Paul was right and not Barnabas. Barnabas was too kind. And, but you know, Barnabas uh, also made a mistake. He was way late in Galatians, so I think Paul. <laughs> but I'm an exhorter, you see. If you, are, if, you are a nice, if you are a nice man, you'll say Barnabas. If, if you're raunchy, you say Paul. <laughs> it's another little joke. It's on tape. All right. Yes, sir. James and First Peter. Yeah, because they're both written to yeah, yeah, yeah. Those of the diaspora. Yeah, right? yeah, or, or yeah. Very good, very good. Uh, Peter saw suffering. Does that make First Peter also very early? Uh, not necessarily. First Peter deals with suffering of persecution. James deals with suffering across the board. A vital difference. Incidentally, what I forgot to tell you that in the conclusion he says, James says, now you go after people the way I go after you. 
Because when people are straying, you save a soul from sin. Remember, you're going to find them. Find them everywhere. People are straying everywhere. Do it, do it, do it. And you cover a multitude of sins. And not only in the recipient, but even in me. If I go after people, just like a little boy who says to his mom, I'm going to help you, mom, with making the beds. And he walks with his dirty shoes, muddy shoes, and there's mud all over the place. What do you think the mother's going to say? Ah, no, no. He says, thank you for going to help me. Next time, take care of your shoes. All right? And that's how God, God does it. I say, Henry, John, James, whatever your name is, yeah, yeah, good, but, but take care of that, all right? But he, I, he cov- he, the mother covers that mud of the little boys, and that's how God covers my mud when I am intending to pursue my giftedness in evangelism, in speaking, in exhorting, in sharing or caring, showing mercy. I'm unstoppable, and I got, God covers the mistakes I made, and I know he did in the past. I know. In my uh, first church, if I would do the same thing in my fir- now in my, fir- in my church in California, I don't think I would be blessed. I didn't know it. But God is so wonderful. You are unstoppable. I'm covering you. Covering you. Now I'm not in Christ. I don't want you to spruce up, but I'm covering you. I cannot tell you what it does for a person, when he looks at himself, he says, Lord, I'm good for nothing. And I often, often have that impression. And I look in the mirror. I say, break the mirror, Lord. And I break the mirrors, and my wife put them right back up. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you, see, you see, that God is a little cover that. But Peter deals with suffering of, per- of persecution. And you have to ask yourself the question, was that the case when James was around? And I don't think so. That came a little later, persecution. But that's my offhand uh, response. I'm more than willing to stand corrected. But they, one thing, it's very clear, they don't talk about the same type of suffering. Je- Peter about persecution is heavy, very heavy. And, um, and James talks about all suffering that everyone has because of the fall. You'll never get out of it. And I preached on First James when I buried uh, the son of the general who, whom the Lord, the Lord used me to take, bring him to the Lord, and he died. I said, I know this young man is born again, born again through the resurrection of Jesus. He gave his cobra to Jesus, and the heart of Jesus came out of the grave. And, uh, I sh- and then at the end of the meeting, uh, and in the three-hour service, uh, a, gener- a man in the, in the uniform came up to me and said, I want to talk to you. And eventually I did. I said, who is that man? He said, the commanding general in the Ugandan army. He said, I'm not born again. Whew. I said, well, sir, if you want my honest, uh, my honest, be honest with the word of God? He said, yes. I was nervous because you don't talk to a general, the Colin Powell, you know what I mean, of the Ugandan army. And I quoted Ezekiel, I said, you have three problems. The heart is like, like a cobra, the past is like dung, and the life is like poison. 
And when you look in the mirror, you may not see it, but when you look in the mirror of the Word of God, it's clear. Does it make an impression on you? He was not a very talkative man, but he said, yes. I said, oh, are you ready to call on the name of the Lord? He said, yes. Give me your hand. Say after me. <laughs> Say after me, Lord Jesus. And he said, Lord Jesus, I now know I have three problems. I have a cobra heart. I have a poison, dung path, a poisonous life. I was a little nervous on the inside because what would happen? He said it. I need the cross to get rid of all three. I need the resurrection to get it in the replaced. I call on you, Lord Jesus. That is amazing. There was a lot of suffering because that boy who came to know the Lord was the son of a general and he was always late for dinner, two, three hours. And I would wait, wait, wait. And finally I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. He came in and said, I pay for the next dinner. I said, all right. And if I had not endured, I would have never seen the boy and I would never seen the general. Count a joy. I'm late. And the private secretary of the president and I were, going, were waiting for, for him for one hour, two hours, and finally said, I'm leaving. Now, she was a big, big lady, private secretary of the president of Uganda in the area of education. I said, please, for my sake, stay, because I'm a, I'm a stranger. And then the general came and said, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm late. <laughs> and she was there. I said, general, they're not going to do it. You kick her against the shins and you say, I'm sorry. She is sorry. The only way you can get out of it is to ask her for forgiveness. And then the ball is in their court and legally she says yes or no. She says, okay, I, please forgive me. <laughs> okay, I forgive you. And I said to the general, I would never have dealt doing it if she hadn't been there. I said, now you must make her forget it. <laughs> and you must send her a bunch of roses tomorrow. At the end of the dinner, <laughs> He was gone. He went to the desk of an upscale hotel. He bought a rose and gave it to her. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how, how, how the Holy Spirit gives you things to say. And the first time that I saw that general, I said, General, um, permission to speak freely. He said, yes, you have permission. He smiled. And I said, well, thinking without acting is sterile and that I'm not staying in my ivory tower. I come here because thinking without acting is sterile. But frankly, where that came from, I don't know. I said, acting without thinking is chaotic. And frankly, your country is a mess. Why dude, peon, general in the Ugandan army, the first, he used to be the commanding general. He smiled twice. He said, you're right. Let's talk. And we had a whole week of think thinking. The man in charge of the political system said, I want you to come. I want you to speak for a whole week to the bigwigs. He was there. The Minister of Finance, later Minister of Finance was there. Uh, a, a historical was there. And for a whole week we talked about political philosophy, political ideology. I don't know when I mean, the Lord Jesus says, don't think ahead of time. Now you've got to prepare in general, all right? But don't think 
about all the details because you don't know what the details are going to be. But if you count on me, I will give you the words to say. And I cannot tell you. Often I say the wrong things, but every once in a while I know it comes from above. And I'm just, uh, I'm just thank, thank the Lord for that. So, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one thing you must do in life. Everything else is secondary, and it's make disciples. Baptize them and then teach them to observe whatever God commands. That's the only reason why the world is here. The only reason why the world is here, I get, I get that from uh, John in the, the book of Revelation. He weeps, is there nobody who can bail us out and to open the scroll so that the history of the world will continue? Is no, can nobody bail us out? Is there no future for this world? Nobody can except the lion lamb because he's going to take a church out of all nations and languages, sexes. Get a church. That is the only reason why Houston exists. Because God wants to get a church out of Houston. The world is a spawning ground for new Christians. If it were not, he would have put this bankrupt world behind long ago. The only reason. And he shows that by killing everybody in the flood. There's no reason for this world. I kill everybody and all the cultural achievements of big industry, children of Lamech, big beauty, big, um, uh, um, uh, big farming, and big entertainment. It was wiped out when Noah looked at the, the earth. It was totally, completely empty. To show them, without God, there's nothing. No future. And in the book of Revelation, can nobody bail us out? The lion lamb. Because he gets a church. That's why it's important that you support a church planter and an evangelist who goes from door to door. And this is the verse that I read this morning. Oh my. I'm really going to conclude with this, okay? Um, well, an hour and a half was my problem. Your questions was your problem. <laughs> uh, all right. Acts. I could not believe it when I read it this morning. Um, and every day they were in the temple and from house to house they did not see teaching and preaching Jesus the Christ. And, and the apostles do that. That's what the church must do. So the only reason why the world is here because it's a spawning ground for new Christians. And the only reason why the church is here is to fish them. Thank you. Chapter 5, verse 42. 5.42. I've never seen that before. When you, read, you don't read it five times, you don't read it, and if you read it five times, it may take ten years before you get it. <laughs> house to house. That's a fiery Irish evangelist got, that, got me going in 1968-69. And I tell you, the Lord gave me conversions. But not easy. The first time I knocked, I hope you are not home. I was scared to death. Right. <laughs> you see, that's why we must evangelists who are unstoppable and take you along. Just like you have teachers to teach and deacons to serve. 
you must have evangelists to evangelize to take you out. And uh, I only know uh, three evangelists in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Bruce Hunt, number one. Harvey Kahn, number two. And John D. Johnston, in, and they're all gone. All dead. And I frankly, I, Mark said, I'm not even going to do the work of an evangelist. And the pastor should at least do the work of an evangelist. And pr pray to God that we get evangelists who can move and take us with us and can help us. You know what I mean? So um, I believe evangelistic gifts are in men and women at the same time. Not office, but giftedness in men and women. So if you have an evangelistic gift and I go with you, I'd be more than happy to let you uh, have the opening statement and you smile and people listen to you and you say, Dr. Henry, it's now your turn. All right, that, 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 that is fine. But you see, you see, the giftedness is central to the church. They are unstoppable. And you have unstoppable evangelism, unstoppable teaching, unstoppable serving. Then when the leadership dies, you can replace them by unstoppable people. And when you're unstoppable, the leadership can use the unstoppable people to strain everybody. But that's a, a totally different course of this dinner.